Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and there's Jerry over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. All right. We've done one on airbags, right? right? Mm-hmm. Which one did we do that was all about, like, the crumple zones and all that stuff? That's a great question, Chuck. I've been really trying to figure that out. I think it must have been Pintos. Was it? I know that we talked a lot about car safety and engineering and how... I don't know, man. I don't know. Now I'm suddenly creeped out. Are you confident we have not done this one? I would put my confidence (laughs) at... I searched so far and wide. 80%. All right. Let's Which, as we've agreed, then. that is well above the 50% threshold that we <laughs> required <laughs> to possibly re-record on. Like, none All of right. this none of this seemed particularly familiar. We've definitely talked about something like crumple zones, that kind of thing. Because we talked about how cars, we uh, like, I used to think they were pieces of junk now. Mm-hmm. But they're actually designed to come apart like that because in doing so, they protect the people inside. Yeah. We've definitely talked about that. But, and that really applies to what we're about to talk about, but the actual details of what we're about to talk about, I don't recognize them as familiar. All right. So forward, forward we go. So, so cars have become exponentially safer than they used to be. Um, there's, first of all, hats off to not only the How Stuff Works article we're working from, um, but also a Consumer Reports article on crash testing that was really great. And then one from Jalopnik. That was a really great one about crash testing your car. And on that Jalopnik article... That's a great website. It is. It's wonderful. Um, on that Jalopnik article, they they posted a YouTube video that made the rounds like a few years back. Um, and it's a, it's a 2009 Malibu versus a 1959 Bel Air. Oh, yeah. And they go head on. And the the dummy in the Malibu's like, what? I didn't even notice anything. And the person in the Bel Air just disintegrates, basically. The, the crash test dummy in the Bel Air just disintegrates. Because cars used to be made to, to be sturdy, but that's mm-hmm. really bad for you in the car. Nowadays, right. they're made to not be sturdy, and that moves the force and the energy of the impact around the car and not into you. And the right. reason why cars are so much better these days now is because we started crash testing them and the people who test them, who crash test them, started telling the public, hey, this car doesn't do very well in a crash test. Uh, this car does really great in a crash test. And people started to kind of sit up and listen and go, oh, wait, we can survive a crash now if we buy a certain car. Let's right. go buy that car. And then automakers started to try to keep up and catch up, and safety became an important thing. And again, it was almost exclusively thanks to crash testing. Yeah, car makers said, yeah, I guess we all got to start making things no, safe. Here we go again. Go to save uh, your lives. Nanny state. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's go back a little bit. We'll talk br- very briefly about the history of crash testing. Mm-hmm. Because, like you said, in the early days, it was basically if, if a car performed well, out there on the road, um, then great. That's kind of, we care about driving the car, not crashing the car. Why would anyone care about that? Right. And then in 1934, General Motors said, you know what, maybe we should crash a car because it turns out that you can die 
when you crash these things. Who knew? So maybe we should look into this. So GM uh, held the very first barrier test at Milford Proving Ground in Michigan in 1934 mm-hmm. uh, with an unoccupied vehicle. And they would do this in different ways. Sometimes they would, like, <laughs> cartoon style, actually in both cases cartoon style, mm-hmm. just like release the emergency brake and give it a push down the hill. Mm-hmm. Or they would say, hey, driver, get in there. And as you approach that brick wall, um, jump out. <laughs> and they said, okay, I guess that's fine. Um, how much are you going to pay me for that? They're like, oh, don't worry about that. Five, They're like, five or aren't $6. you a prisoner from a chain gang? Nothing. <laughs> right. So uh, these early tests, again, though, weren't to protect people. They were just to try and make sure the car could hold up a little better. Mm-hmm. And so other car companies, as they started building cars, started doing this. They didn't have proving grounds necessarily. So sometimes they would even do this on public roads, Mm -hmm. which was nuts. Uh, And then in 1952, a man named Sam Alderson really changed the game when he founded Alderson Research Laboratories, uh, which would later on become something you may have heard of called Humanetics. Uh Uh, They were doing, they won the very first contract to create anthropomorphic dummies for testing airplanes and spacecraft, like ejection seats, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then eventually they said, they were using like sandbags and stuff like that. And eventually they said, hey, wait a minute, you could do this in cars too. So he got together with Sierra Engineering, uh, the Sierra Engineering Company and created the very first crash test dummy, Sierra Sam. (laughs) Oh, that's right. We talked about Sierra Sam in the uh, Murphy's Law episode. Okay. With John Paul Stapp. Maybe it's just a bunch of stuff cobbled together. It makes me think we did this one. Possible. Uh, but Sierra Sam came along. They applied all these concepts to automotive testing. And Sam Alderson is sort of a legend now. He, he died at the age of 90 in 2005 and was posthumously inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2013. Rightfully so. Uh, with a lot of inventions, but largely this uh, crash test dummy patented in 1981 was the big one. Yeah. So was that the one that was called the uh, hy- Hybrid 3? Um, the Hybrid 3, and this is still Humanetics, by the way, that makes these. Yeah, they're, they're, like, they're, yeah, they're like as good as it gets with Crash Test Dummy create, design and creation. Yeah, 1988 was when the Hybrid 3 was first developed. And then I think they upgraded it in 91 to take seatbelts into consideration. Uh-huh. And then in 97 to take airbags into consideration. Right. And now the standard, and we'll get to why they did this, is the H... Three five F meaning fifth female, yeah. So the fifth fifth percentile size wise female is the standard dummy that's used now. Well, that's great, and that's a huge huge progression because for decades and decades they used what was known as the fiftieth percentile male dummy, right? Which five ten one seventy. Which was, yeah, 5 feet, 10 inches, 170 pounds. And he was introduced from what I saw in 1976 at a time when the average male in the United States was 5, 10, 170 pounds. Well, the average male in the United States has not been 5, 10, 170 pounds for a really long time. What is Uh, it now? Do you know? The average males gained about 25 pounds and shrunk an inch since then. (laughs) <laughs> that tracks. <laughs> That's the average male in the United States now. But the problem is, is like these crash testers were still using that that um, 50th percentile male, male dummy, even though it didn't apply. And that's not to say anything about 
child uh, dummies, uh, mm-hmm. female dummies. Um, they were. It was basically like you know how when they test a new drug, they test it on the healthiest, least yeah. vulnerable population, and then say it works. That's exactly what the history of crash testing has done, uh, and but only in the last, I don't know, probably ten. 10 years or so, have they really been like, no, we really need to expand the types of dummies that we're using. So they're coming up with, they're using female dummies more frequently, child dummies more frequently, obese dummies, because apparently an obese person is about 70% likelier to die in a car accident than a non-obese person. So they're now creating obese dummies to get a better idea of just how safe these actually are in as close to a real-world application as possible. Yeah, and I I mean, the way I read this is at some point they said, well, we need to make these safe for all drivers, so what's the most vulnerable driver probably? And they all said, well, I guess a 16-year-old girl Mm -hmm. is, you know, statistically most likely to be probably the smallest uh, version of these dummies, so that's what they went with. They went with the fifth percentile uh, female hybrid three and I guess the reckoning is if it can be safe for them, then it can be safe for that dumb average male. It's pretty great. Yeah. there's, But it's still not required. There's actually a representative, a congresswoman from D.C. named Eleanor Holmes Norton, who just this past June introduced a bill that would require um, crash testers to also use um, – Female dummies too. So right now it's not it's not they required. Should use a range. Yeah, of course they should use a range. It's just sensible. And so the you know the people who who do crash testing are aware of this and they're starting to. But Chuck, there's one other thing I saw about crash test dummies. Um, one of the things they can't replicate is tissue damage. Right. Or even real damage. Like when when you do crash tests, we'll talk about a, a little more detail in a second, but um, when you use a dummy for that kind of thing, they're outfitted with loads of different kinds of sensors, hundreds of sensors recording all this amazing data. And then they take that data and they they basically turn it into a statistical likelihood that mm-hmm. that amount of force, that amount of acceleration, um, that amount of uh, Gs suddenly pressing on your chest would cause an injury or not. That's what right. crash test dummies do for us. But they don't actually replicate like tissue damage or your leg falling off or anything like that um, because they're made to be used over and over and over again so that they could be subjected to the kinds of stuff that would just destroy a human body. So some crash testing, Chuck, Chuck, some crash testing <laughs> uses post-mortem human subjects. I wondered if that's where this is going. A lot of post-mortem human subjects, some of them embalmed, which we mm-hmm. failed to mention in our embalming episode. Yeah. Some fresh, they call them fresh, because an embalmed one is just not going to replicate the kind of yuck sure. that a fresh one will. And so yeah. that's a huge part of crash testing, from what I can tell, is using post-mortem human subjects as well. Wow. That's amazing. Um, and we should also point out, maybe we'll take a break, but before we take one, we should point out that this uh, that car companies do all kinds of internal crash testing before they get to the regulatory crash testing because n- you, you don't want to you don't want to fail those. So they they'll crash eighty to a hundred new vehicles in in a line. Yeah. 
uh, before they even get to the regulatory bodies to do their official crashes. Right. Uh, and what we're mainly talking about is those official crashes, but I imagine they're all pretty similar. No, and we should also say those official crashes, they're, they're not even necessarily official. Basically, the, the National Highway Trans- Tra- Traffic Safety Administration has a bunch of guidelines, some of them involving crashes. And then they basically say, these are the guidelines, you, you, you car makers better meet them. But they don't go and actually right. like test the cars for that. The crashing that they're doing is beyond the minimum the law requires. So nobody's actually s- testing the, the automaker's cars to, to see that they meet the minimum requirements. It's just the threat of basically yeah, being sued into oblivion right. <laughs> for not meeting those minimum standards is um, is what keeps the car makers honest. And then that, and then one other thing I saw from that Jalopnik article, is the minimum legal standards that a car can be put out on an American road are so low mm-hmm. that they they so vastly, like, like under under meat <laughs> under satisfy yes thank you charles they so vastly under satisfy what the average american would be willing to get in and drive right. yeah, that yeah. just you know what americans want to drive as far as safety is concerned is is one is that that's what car makers are meeting not just the minimum legal requirements so very interesting you're probably your car is probably going to exceed those minimum legal requirements you don't really have to worry about that in the united states Right. And then, we'll talk about this at the end, there are tests completely separate that done uh, by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety mm-hmm. that are even more different and more robust. Great setup, my friend. Chuck, great setup to you, my friend. Can we just stop now, or do we have to come back? Uh, we probably already did this episode anyway, so we can just stop. All right. Well, we'll be back right after this. No. Anyway. <laughs> well, now, when you're on the road... Driving in your truck, why not learn a thing or two from Josh and Chuck? It's Stuff You Should Know. All right. All right. So we've laid the groundwork here. Uh, We know they're crashing some cars. A lot, mm-hmm. uh, all in the name of making things safe for us. Mm-hmm. But we know that they're not saying, uh, they're not like, it's not like GM says, all right, here's here's the car. Go tell us if it's okay. Right. It's it's a voluntary thing. Yeah. Uh, sort of. Um, like, good luck selling cars if you don't. But sure, it's voluntary. Mm-hmm. And they're loaded with, semi- uh, with uh, sensors. Like you said, they're accelerometers. Uh, and accelerometers are going to measure acceleration in a particular direction. Uh, they use this, obviously, to determine if you might get injured. Mm-hmm. Um, acceleration is the rate at which speed changes. So yeah. if you're driving a car and uh, you let's say there were no airbags back in the day and no seatbelts, and your head hits that windshield, the acceleration from your head flying forward to hitting, uh, not zero, because it's going to go through the windshield, mm-hmm. um, but it's going to decrease really, really fast. And that that rate of acceleration change is the danger. And making cars safe is all about softening that and lessening that kinetic energy of your body mm-hmm. and that car's energy going from whatever speed it's going to to zero. 
Yeah, because yeah, you and the car are both traveling the same speed, and you you both have to stop pretty quickly. Um, you want to cut down on the car transferring its kinetic energy to you, and then you want to cut down on your kinetic energy. Like, if you're going to have to transfer your kinetic energy to something, let it be like an airbag or, or something like that rather than the dashboard. Right. So that's why they have these accelerometers all over the place. They're in your head. They're in the chest. They're in the pelvis. Mm-hmm. They're in kind of every body part you can think of. They're accelerometers. And it's it's neat. Like I was saying, like the 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 um, crash test dummies, the anthropomorphic test devices is what they're called in the industry. Um, they are getting more and more um, biofidelic. Like they're they're faithful to biology is is basically what that word means. Um, and so <clears throat> you're you're finding crash test dummies that are starting to have like simulated internal organs and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Because Beards. It, I mean I can guess if you're in the industry, you probably don't really want to deal with postmortem human subjects. You would much rather have crash test dummies that basically replicate the same things. Yeah. But we're still a long way off from that. It's just on the horizon they're starting to work on it now. But one other thing I saw, Chuck, is that they they may not ever become widely used because 3D modeling is so is so rapidly advancing yeah that all of this will probably in the next 15 years they will do crash tests still but it will be once and it'll be after running tons of computer simulations and then they will just do it once in like the real world to make sure that the computer's right but it'll probably all become virtual pretty soon because we're getting we're getting really good at at modeling humans yeah sure getting good at modeling traffic accidents so you put them together and you can kind of test cars based on the parameters that you just feed in you just make measurements on the cars and feed it into the computer and press enter and sit back and you know, maybe have uh, a Clark bar. <laughs> I was uh, just in uh, Northern California and San Francisco and wine country and uh, just in San Francisco for the night. But in that one evening walking around, I saw probably four different, um, I can't remember what it's called, but the Google self-driving car hmm. concepts. The death car? Driving around town. The Diablo? Uh, yeah. God, what's it called? Uh, I can't remember, but... I just saw this car with like a big thing on the roof with like a spinner in it. Mm-hmm. And at first I thought it was a, uh, like maybe Google Earth or something. Right. Or Street View. And uh, I looked up what it was and it is it is a self-driving concept car. And they had people in them driving, obviously, <laughs> at this stage. Right. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, no one's in that car. But uh, it was definitely, you know, when you walk around San Francisco, that's the testing ground for all that kind of stuff. So sure. it's very interesting. That's great. Um, all right, so you got those accelerometers. You have load sensors. Uh, they're going to measure the amount of force mm-hmm. uh, during a crash. You have movement sensors mm-hmm. um, that, you know, they're going to sense the movement of the body and everything it's doing. Yeah. And the really important thing within all this, and I think we talked about this in one of the other episodes, is these dummies are painted up. And they're painted, and the different body parts are painted with different colors. And it's it's pretty ingenious, actually. Something is an idea as simple as that mm-hmm. can tell you so much because when they go to look in that car afterward, and they see, you know, there's red paint here and there's blue paint there, they're gonna be like, well, how did that knee hit that part of the car? Because right. that's the only place where there's blue paint is on the kneecap. Right. 
uh, I guess we got to figure this out. And so they look at the scuff marks and they can tell exactly what body part hit exactly what car part. I love that too, that we're just getting so much more advanced, but good old fashioned, like, you know, putting paint or chalk on on the face to see what it hits is still just as useful as ever. All right. So how did these crashes go? Oh, well, there's a few things that you got to do first. Um, so the the when when they're carrying out these crashes, the um, IIHS, uh, the, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, those, in the United States, those are the two groups that carry out the most crash testing. And they're both independent, and they go buy their own cars, and they just test them, and then they tell everybody what the results are, and they have their own rating systems. And we'll talk about all that in a minute. But the IAHS, one of the first things they do is um, they basically gut the car. Like, they'll put, they'll take the, the um, well, all the vital fluids out, I should say. They take out the antifreeze, they take out the oil, they take out the fuel, and then they replace it with, like, mineral spirits so that it still has the same weight and everything. Sure. Um, because it, it can be a pretty big mess when, when you're um, carrying out one of these tests, and there's no reason to get antifreeze all over the place. You can go look and, and make a pretty good estimation of what it would have looked like just because the hose was ripped off. You don't need to see the antifreeze all over the floor. Right. So they'll actually prep the car to get it ready. They measure it, they weigh it, um, and they want it to be as close to like a real-life situation as possible. So they'll put different dummies um, in the car. Sometimes they fill it out with, you know, adult male, 50, uh, 50th percentile male, 5th percentile female in the passenger, um, another 5th percent female in the in the back. Um, and then the car is ready to go. They put it. They put all sorts of cameras all over the car, as well as sensors too. Um, and they have all sorts of high-speed uh, cameras filming the whole thing as well. Because you know, <clears throat> just like painting the face of the the crash test dummy is really important. You know, using your eyes, like visually inspecting what happens. You, as the human engineer, seeing this with your own eyes, there's stuff that you're going to see that just wouldn't wouldn't be translated from the data that the sensors are picking up on the dummies. Yeah, and you, if you're at home or driving your car right now and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, guys, if they're taking all the gasoline and the oil out of the car, mm-hmm. how does it go forward when they drop the cinder block on the accelerator and shut the door really fast? Great question. And jump out of the way. Um, they're not doing that. The car doesn't have to be started. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be running because the car is on a track and it is being pulled down a runway. And that all makes complete sense that this is operated by pulley and not by an actual car being started and driven. Uh, all they need to know is that this thing is going to go 35 miles an hour right. into that uh, wall, or I guess in the case of the uh, the insurance group, I think they go 40, yeah. right? Yeah. So they go a little bit faster. And they do different kinds of impacts. They go, you know, I think the the for many, many years, the gold standard was the head-on collision. And so they have built cars over the years to withstand as best as possible that head-on collision with another car or hitting that brick wall straight on. Like we've all seen the videos Mm -hmm. and, and you think, yeah, that's the worst of the worst. Of course, that's what you should prepare for. But, uh, it's pretty cool. The, um, What's the name of the insurance group again? The I... The IIHS, the Insurance uh, Institute for Highway Safety. 
Yeah, they started saying, and a lot of stuff was overhauled in 2010. They started saying things like, well, maybe the worst crash is when two people are trying to turn through an intersection or your left headlight meets up with their left headlight Mm -hmm. and there's like just a bit of overlap and it's not a head-on collision. Like we're building these for head-on collisions. And what if there are weak points at these corners and they're right. <laughs> that is a real danger. So they have found out through these crash tests of these partial, uh, not layovers, what do they call them? Uh, overlaps. Yeah, yeah. In, instead of a full head-on collision, they're learning that some of those crashes can be worse. Right. And so we need to start testing that stuff. And like maybe it's not a straight T-bone into the side of the car. You think of that as the worst thing, but what if it's forward a little bit or backward a little bit from that point? Yeah, or, you know, if if you're doing a head-on collision, it's so rare that two cars right, run meet perfectly. Completely, yeah, like like uh, hood ornament to hood ornament. This is not how it happens. It's usually like, you know, the front bumper of one car into the other. And, you know, the car, the auto industry, car makers have been creating these crumple zones in the front that were relying on, you know, that full front impact that the crash testers were testing for so that they could meet those standards, but they really weren't designing for the other real-world stuff. And so the the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the IHS started testing, making their tests a little differently. And all of a sudden, the, um, the automakers started not getting the marks that they were before. Yeah. And so they kind of were forced to scramble to keep up, as we'll see, which is pretty great because it really shows that the people who run these crash tests and who actually do this work care about you and your family when you're driving around in a car. They're not sitting on their laurels. Or they are, but then they eventually stop sitting on their <laughs> laurels and, like, re-challenge everybody again. Yeah, I think they were. Uh, they found that a lot of those sort of um, – diagonal hits were causing a lot of like pretty catastrophic leg injuries, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so they had to kind of reconfigure things. Um, inside the car, and, you know, modern cars are so, you know, I, I think I bought my first new car of my life a few years ago when I uh, bought my Volvo. And, um, you know, Volvos are known for their safety anyway. And um, these things... I mean, they have all sort of, and all most modern cars on the market now have these where they're braking automatically for you mm-hmm. and they're helping you stay in your lane and all that stuff. But, you know, if you do a certain move in this car, um, your seatbelt, it's called pretension. They have pretensioners in the seatbelt that will tighten down on you right before an impact. And I've had that thing tightened down on me before, man. Mm-hmm. And it's a little disconcerting. Like, you know, it's for your safety, but when you're not expecting it mm-hmm. and, and you don't get into a crash and all of a sudden you're like, <gasps> and your seatbelt cranks down on you. Yeah. Um, they also have something called a force limiter that is going to work in uh, hand in hand with that pretensioner to make sure that they, you know, it doesn't just pretension through your chest into the back seat. <laughs> right. Gross. And so that all happens just before the airbag. It's all timed out like by the millisecond. Yeah. To tighten down that seat belt to try and keep you from going forward at all. And then the airbag comes out. So when you do go forward, even uh, that'll, and you know, you can listen to the airbags episode for all the detail there, but mm-hmm. they, they work hand in hand to make sure you that you're slowing that kinetic energy down as slowly and evenly as you can. They work hand and degloved hand. Hand and so gross. <laughs> and yeah, you could you like seatbelts that do things like that? You like airbags? Thank crash testers who basically created, who demonstrated the need for that 
And automakers responded because people who buy cars like you and me said, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to, to live. Yeah, I think my car even has – it has a built-in booster seat in the middle for my daughter, mm-hmm. which she's finally old enough to ride in. And when that seat is unhooked and engaged, you just kind of pop a little lever and push it into place. Mm-hmm. It uh, The side curtain airbags raise so – because they know that the airbag will hit the child in a in a safer way, basically, because the kid is in there. It's really it's amazing, like how much how far safety has come. Well, in side impact airbags, uh, that was another um, development that that came out of crash testing too. Was not just the existence of side impact airbags, but you know, once those were created, they were they they came about because of the crash testers suddenly doing like T bone testing, like side impact tests. But now they've also realized that um, if you hit, like, the front corner of your car, like, say, on a telephone pole, um, it's going to spin you around. You're going to start rotating around the telephone pole, and you might slide off of that front airbag coming out of your your steering wheel. So what right. they, And they saw that on crash tests. Without that, a side impact. Right. So that yeah. they, they realized, they went to the automakers and said, hey, you should probably have these side impact uh, curtains come down when there's this front bumper impact too, like on a telephone pole, because people are going to slide off and you want the, the side impact airbag to be there as well. Yeah, and then the stressed out uh, engineer says, <laughs> well, maybe the whole car should just be one giant airbag. Would that make you happy? <laughs> Get out of here. That was a great stressed out engineer impression. And then the... Uh, the people say, yeah, actually, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. Put them everywhere. Yeah. Who was that? Was it Dennis Leary? <laughs> what? That was a stand-up comedian who's like, well, they should just all be side. They should all just be. Oh, airbags. really? I think so. Oh, well. That just shows how easy it can be to steal a bit. Yeah, accidentally, right? Yeah. You owe Dennis Leary $5. <laughs> uh, all right. I'll pay him right after this ad break. Okay. Well, now we're on the road. Driving in your truck, why not learn a thing or two from Josh and Chuck? It's Stuff You Should Know. All right. Okay, so we never really said uh, what happens in the in the crash test. Um, there's a few different ones that are carried out depending on whether you're hanging around the National Highway Traffic uh, Safety Administration's crash testing site or the Insta- Insurance Institute for Highway Safety's crash test site. But they're very similar. Um, a lot of people look to the IIHS as maybe being the gold standard and the um, Safety Administration as being more government bureaucracy, mm-hmm. but they're both doing pretty good work. If you, um, both of them really rely on the front crash because mm-hmm. those happen a lot. And when they do happen, they can have pretty serious consequences for the passengers of the car. So the Traffic Safety Administration, they do they do one, um, and theirs is a full impact where they drag the car at 35 miles an hour into a concrete barrier and the whole the whole uh, hood, the whole front bumper is involved in the impact. The IHS, and this is one reason why they're kind of looked at as as maybe being a little better, um, they they do 
parts where the front bumper, only a percentage is used. And they do two different crash tests. They do one where 25% of the front bumper, so it'd be like left headlight to left headlight kind of crash, head-on collision. Yeah. And then they do another one that's 40% that involves more of the bumper. And um, one of the They things, also do those pole tests. Well, yeah, and I think the Traffic Safety Administration does those as well now, right? Oh, okay, so they got on board? Yeah, finally they said, okay, we, we really need to kind of consider this because people do run into um, a, a pole, a telephone pole once in a while, and, like, they're, these, these groups are trying to recreate real-world scenarios as much as possible to see how cars hold up, you know? Yeah, and again, to reiterate, the IIHS does an extra five miles per hour, 40 as opposed to 35. Um, there is an injury classification system uh, that's used from one to six, one being minor cuts and bruises all the way up to fatal. Uh, and that is not the star rating. That's just totally dealing with the kind of injuries that somebody may like the likelihood of what kind of injuries is what they're trying to measure, at least. Yeah, there was a group called the um, American, uh, or no, the Association for Advancement of Automotive Medicine that came up with that scale, the abbreviated injury scale. And there is a lot that goes into it. And they, oh, yeah. they were kind enough to basically create a handbook that they shared with these car testers and car makers um, so that they could they could take this data and translate it into injuries. So they could say like, oh, well, the crash test dummy had a load of, you know, 5 million newtons on what would be the femur. And so the mm -hmm. femur would have just snapped in eight pieces. So that would be this number. And so that that abbreviated uh, injury uh, report um, is is taken into account and translated further into the rating systems because the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration basically looks at how the car holds up in producing injuries, and then the IIHS looks at how the car holds up in, in crashes as far as injuries goes, and then also the other um, the other occupant um, safety uh, stuff too, like like the seatbelts, the airbags, all of that stuff. Right, and you mentioned in 2010 is when things, and it's it's kind of horrifying to think of, they were doing good work up until 2010. It's not like it was willy-nilly or anything. Mm -hmm. But when you look at all the changes they've made since 2010, you're kind of like, man, it took that long right. to start considering some of this stuff? Because it still seems a little behind the curve, even with the updates. Yeah, know? as far as body types and all that stuff, mm -hmm. for sure. Um so they they changed things in 2010. The new star ratings came out in 2011. And cars that were previously getting four and five star ratings in every category in 2010, all of a sudden weren't getting like three stars maybe or maybe even two stars under the new system. And that's because they, they have these new injury parameters. They're adding these different tests now. Um, they're using the different size dummies. They're now using that, again, that small adult female Instead of the 5'10", 170 male who, if I ever weigh literally 100, because I'm about 5'10", if I ever weigh 170 on the nose, I don't know. That's super. I'm either going to try and gain 5 or lose 5. I don't want to be 170 on the nose. Okay, you don't want to be median. I get that. I don't want to, and hey, I'm doing a great job so far. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Nowhere close to it. Right, you, you're just playing it safe. Yeah, yeah, but if I go on some massive weight loss campaign, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop at like 180 and be like, I like a little chunk around the middle. That's what I'm going for is 180 as well, maybe. Yeah, that's a good weight, but you're you're like six feet though, right? 
Uh, I am five Close. foot eleven and a half. It just irks me to and, no end. And getting smaller. Yeah, just like the average male. Yep. You'll be five ten one day, my friend. You think so? No, nah, probably not that short. Okay. But I used to be a solid five ten, and now I'm like five nine and a half. What happens? What are you just getting compressed? I don't. I think that's a good. Uh, I mean, you shrink as you get older. That's a good shorty. I think. Okay. Why do you shrink? I don't know. We'll have to find out and tell everybody. <laughs> uh, some of the other key parts of the post-2010 is uh, the NHTSA started assigning a single overall safety score mm-hmm. from front side and rollover with front uh, having the heaviest weight of that overall score. Mm-hmm. Uh, they start started putting in these additional measures for, uh, for neck extension, chest deflection, and femur. Mm-hmm. And I think they didn't have that before, which is kind of horrifying. Right. Uh, what else? I think they added the pole test. Yeah, running into poles, it's a big one, too. One of the things that they did that really changed things is that rather than just getting an absolute score uh, based on their criteria, they started pitting cars against one another, too. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a huge one. That was an enormous change because now they're like, okay, you want to be the best? Well, you got to be the best in the industry. You can't just be like, you know, yes, we're all going to meet this. And that was one reason why those 2010 changes were made and one reason why the IIHS keeps changing its tests. They're not like, well, like anytime they, they, they create a new test or they create a new standard, all of the automakers rush to meet that. Um, and some of them may already meet it or come close. They won't have to do too much to meet those higher standards because they're already over-designing beyond what were the requirements before. But the rest of the industry, the, if you don't know by now, just from like our Pinto episode alone, the auto industry is really lazy sometimes when it comes to over-designing. Um, they will sometimes meet minimum requirements even when they're exceeding minimum requirements. And this is a good right. example of that because with the NHTSA, when they're doing crash tests, they're basically just doing it for fun. This is, again, not this is not law. Like, you can get a one-star rating from the NHTSA, and you're fine. Like, it just looks bad to your consumer. But the fact that it looks bad to your consumer means that the automaker will scramble to try to get that five-star rating. But then they'll right. they'll hack it. They'll figure it out. Like, all we have to do is focus on the whole front crumple zone. We don't have to worry about the, the driver's side or the passenger side of the bumper. We just have to worry about the whole front because that's what the NHTSA does when they're doing tests. And if we can meet that standard... We'll get that five stars. Well, when the NHTSA and the IIHS change their standards, all of a sudden, the industry has to scramble to catch up to become like that gold standard. And they do it again and again and again to keep safety getting better and better and better. And then also finding new things that had been overlooked before to make those parts of cars safer as well. Which is pretty cool. I mean, like, this is, again, this is superfluous. None of this is mandated. It's not mandatory. No one, no car maker has to submit to this. They actually don't even have a choice because these agencies are going and buying their own cars and crashing them. And there's nothing illegal about that. Um, but they, the just the fact that somebody's out there doing this, I think, is just such a great, it's just a great example of people caring about other people. Yeah, and, you know, it's gotten to the point where, if you have a, a newer car with the airbags and such and safety standards and you and you wear your seatbelt, mm-hmm. um, there are outliers, of course, with just these horrific car wrecks that do happen. 
But if you're just talking about a standard, even bad car crash, you are going to fare pretty well these days, thanks to the work that all these people have done over the years. Yeah. Um, again, there are outliers, but uh, they have made cars really, really incredibly safe um, to get into what I would just describe as sort of a, a normal car wreck. And not a fender bender, like, you know, a car wreck that even might look pretty gnarly. And you see them on the road, you know, you see two cars, you're like, oh, my gosh. And you see people standing outside, like, giving the officer their, you know, the account of what happened. Right. And you're just like, man, there it is right there. Like, those people are are standing there talking to somebody. Yep. Uh, whereas, you know, two decades ago, they were probably, you know, maybe not even alive, which is just a testament to all the work they've done. Yep. Um, one way they really need to ramp it up. And I couldn't tell if they were actually even doing this testing yet. Uh, but some of that stuff you sent pointed out says that like, they're still sort of crashing similar cars into one another. Oh yeah. That's a big one. And that's a big deal these days when you've got these, you know, what happens when a, a, a suburban crashes into a, a Honda Civic. Right. Um, these are two very much mismatched cars, not just in overall size, but bumper height is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And these bumpers are made to hit one another and then operate accordingly from there. If a bumper is going over the other bumper, uh, which often happens in these cases of a big SUV or a big truck compared to a smaller car, uh, that this is where you're going to see a lot of like kind of bad injuries happening. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they're actually testing for that, or if they're just talking about like, hey, what do we need to do to test this stuff? Right, exactly. Um, I don't know if they are yet either, but they seem to be on the precipice if not. Another yeah. one, um, another criticism I've seen of, of both groups is that they're they're testing these at 35 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour. And everybody's like, well, I drive a heck of a lot faster than 40 miles an hour. What would my yeah, car do true. at 60, you know? Or seventy or eighty, something like that, um, and that's a that is a big criticism. The the both agencies push back and say this is this is where most of the accidents happen. I'm sure right. they're basing that on statistics, and I would probably tend to say, okay, yes, but what about the you know maybe that's fifty one percent, but what about the forty nine percent that is you know much faster than that? And I think if they did start crash testing at higher speeds, cars would be shown to be kind of pitiful in in handling that, and maybe automakers would start to scramble to catch up to that, too. Well, yeah, because they're kind of working on the assumption, which may be correct, that most of these wrecks are happening in, like, neighborhoods and not necessarily on the expressway. But what about the guy who's driving 60 through the neighborhood? Right. You know, they're, they're saying, like, this this is assuming people are driving the speed limit, which is not the case. And we, I have a, a street very near my house that is, uh, you know, it, it's not a highway, but people drive like it's a highway because right. it's really long and straight, and sort of runs between all these residential neighborhood streets. Mm-hmm. And you know, people go sixty, seventy miles an hour. It's just ridiculous. I know, dude. I've it's gotten crazy. to this like point where I've turned into an old middle aged yeah. man. Where do you I will scream too fast shout, in your neighborhood? Slow down. <laughs> I do too. And somebody driving too fast. It's it's oh, man. man, it is very like I, I can't I can't help it. I can't not do it. Yeah, and I live um near an intersection and there's a curve in my street before the intersection. So people will come around the curve and if they see the light is green, they will just hammer it to try and make that light. And like all of a sudden they're going like literally like fifty miles an hour in front of my house. And I just oh man, it makes me so mad. Yeah, I'm with you. Get so angry about that stuff. 
<laughs> just great. no point because, well, it's because it's you know you know the deal. Sure, I, I people know. driving that fast to save what ends up being thirty seconds at a stoplight. It's mm-hmm. just when you outweigh risks and what you're gaining. Like even if you think you're in a hurry, mm-hmm. you're really not in the end getting there that much quicker. Like a minute or two isn't that big of a difference. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's unnerving that people take that kind of risk just to make a light. Nice, nice. Don't do it, people. Show. That's my soapbox moment. Yeah, I think you you just stay up there on that soapbox, buddy. That is a big one. <laughs> Can yeah. I come down to pee? No. Uh, You've made your bed, now you have to stand in it. <laughs> pee in it. <laughs> you got anything else? I got nothing else. I got one more thing. One of the reasons why I also love the IIHS is the highest possible rating you could get from them is just good. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Poor, marginal, acceptable, and then good. How do we do? Good. <laughs> nothing nothing better? No exclamation points? No confetti? No. Good. good. Uh, well, since Chuck and I both said good, that means, of course, everybody, it's time for listener mail. Uh, this is from our Trepanation episode, which just dropped today in real time. Oh, nice. Hey, guys. I was listening to the episode on tree panning, and I feel like I, I'm such an adult. I literally had never thought of craniotomies as the modern version of uh, trepanning. Trepanning? What did we end up with? Trepanning? I don't know. Trepanning doesn't sound familiar. Trepanning. Even though I knew about the ancient practice. uh, This is really funny because I had a craniotomy. Wow. I have a uh, Chiari malformation syndrome. I have Chiari. I think it's C-H-I-A-R-I. And I bet you it's not Chiari. You got to say it like a, an Italian person. Chiari. <laughs> Malformation syndrome. And part of decompression surgery was a crani- craniotomy. Wow. Uh, this totally computes with the idea of ancient people using uh, trepanning to relieve chronic headaches. Since one of Chiari's main symptoms is terrible, terrible constant headaches. Oh, man. Uh, something else you said in the episode helped me make sense of something my neurosurgeon said, too. When discussing the diagnosis and what the decompression surgery would achieve... He briefly said that some people think the surgery actually can help cure depression, even though there's no evidence. I'd never heard of that and certainly wasn't looking for that uh, for that case myself. Just wanted to stop falling over. Uh, but you mentioned in the episode that there were a lot of internet rumors that trepanning can help with depression. So now I know why he said that. Anyway, this is a fun episode to listen to and kind of see myself in. So thanks for that. Keep up the good stuff. That is from Amanda. Awesome, Amanda. I'm really glad we could kind of connect the pieces for you. Yeah, and I hope you're doing well. Yeah, me too. I hope you're not falling over any longer and you don't have headaches. Agreed. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us like Amanda did, then you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.